great to be with you here, and I uh, just want you to know, um, uh, as far as my role, I just came to Carson Newman uh, back in August, and thankful to be there, but I'm really thankful for your church, uh, because uh, your pastor has been uh, not only a friend to me, but an encouragement, and I get to work with Robin every day, and she has been fantastic, and so they've, they've not only been an encouragement, but have been partners uh, with me at Carson Newman, and so I'm thankful for them and their ministry, hope you guys uh, are as blessed by them as I am, and so I'm thankful to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go with me to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, and we'll be there in just a second as we try to answer uh, the question that you guys submitted. Uh, but uh, several years ago, Lifeway Research did a, a massive research project uh, trying to figure out what are the like number one, two, three, and four uh, indicators for spiritual growth. For Christians who are trying to grow spiritually to become more like Jesus, what are the factors or what are the indicators that most help Christians grow? And what they found was that the number one spiritual growth predictor, and this shouldn't be too much of a shock, okay, and, and there's all kinds of things that were, prayer and being part of a church and service and all those things, but the number one spiritual growth predictor was reading your Bible, okay? That's the one thing that helps you grow in your faith the most. Now, here's the challenge. For many people who have grown up in church uh, and been a part of church life and lived in the Bible Belt, uh, they know that they're supposed to read their Bible, but many, many Christians don't know how to read the majority of their Bible called the Old Testament, okay? About two-thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament, and it's really difficult, if people are honest, it's really difficult to read. And so let's just kind of get it on the table, okay? It's church. We can tell the truth in here. There's a lot of weird stuff in the Old Testament, right? Like a lot of weird stuff. There's like prescriptions and commands for the priest that they've got to flick blood onto the altar. That's strange, okay? There's commands from God to his people to wipe out entire populations, including the women and children. There's commands not to wear polyester, you know. There's talking snakes and talking donkeys, okay. So it's, it's weird, all right. There's a lot of weird stuff in there. And because of that, uh, there are people who are more skeptical or that you would call classically more liberal Christians who will say, well, that, those passages in the Old Testament, especially like what we're dealing with, the early chapters in Genesis, those are myth. They're not history. They're myth. And there were all kinds of cultures around at that time that would tell these stories, tell these myths to kind of explain, you know, sociological phenomena around them or natural phenomena around them. Uh, they weren't real stories. They're not history. They're myth but they help explain kind of the way life works. Or, uh, you know, maybe uh, some people are saying right now, some Christians uh, who would claim to believe the Bible are saying, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Okay, Andy Stanley is a famous preacher who's made this claim the last several years, and he's, he's saying, you know what, the Old Testament doesn't really matter. Like, the, the whole ground of Christianity, Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection of Jesus, 
and whether or not the eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus were telling the truth. And so you don't really need the Old Testament. You can unhitch your faith from the Old Testament. And this is what people are saying uh, about the Old Testament. But here's one of my biggest problems. One of my biggest problems is that while we, most of us, go to churches like True Life, where we would reject that and we would say, no, the Old Testament's not myth, and no, we shouldn't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Functionally, like in practice, we do the exact same thing that those people are saying. And so oftentimes what Christians do is, just like Andy Stanley, they, they won't say out loud, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament, but they do in practice. And so they, they rarely read it or they try to avoid it. Maybe they'll read Proverbs, you know, maybe they'll read the Psalms for worship, but Leviticus, come on, I'm not going to read Leviticus. And I mean, Chronicles is like the first seven chapters is a family tree, and so I, I'm not going to read all that stuff. And so James seems a little bit more my speed, or the Gospel of Mark, you know, that, that really is something that impacts me. I'm, I'm not going to really read the Old Testament. So though we would claim that the Bible is God's Word and that we need it for spiritual growth, we often avoid it in our Bible reading. Uh, not only that, we, again, we wouldn't say it's myth, but we approach the Bible in the same way that the people who call it myth approach the Bible and will say, you know, maybe it's history or whatever, but what's really important is what it means for my life. And so what's really important is the lesson or the principle that it's telling me, you know, whether it's history or not, I mean, that doesn't, that's not as really big a deal to my day-to-day -day life as whether it teaches me a lesson. And so we approach the Bible in that kind of way. What is the lesson? What is the moral? What is the principle that I get from this passage? And so we were all raised in this, all right? We are raised in this in Sunday school. We were raised in this in vacation Bible school. And we were taught, be brave like David. Pray like Daniel. Don't be lustful like Samson. You know, I saw one time in a children's Sunday school quarterly, and I, I have no idea why I was in there, but it said, be nice to your mother-in-law like Ruth. And uh, my mother-in-law is here and, and thankful that she's here. And I think that's great advice, okay? You should be nice to your mother-in-law. But that's not what the book of Ruth is about. And the Bible's not simply giving you these moral tips of be brave and pray and, and you know, control yourself around women. I mean, that's, that's not what the Bible is all about. And while those things are good advice, we're acting like the Old Testament is just like a cartoon that you'd watch on Nickelodeon. You know, it's kind of like, okay, who are the good guys that I should imitate? Who are the bad guys that I should avoid being like? And that's the way that we approach the Old Testament, these moral lessons that we are getting from it. And the problem is that that approach to the Bible implies that my acceptance by God is dependent upon my performance. That, that, that I obey God in order to be accepted by God. And if I don't obey Him well enough, then He's going to cast me out. Not only is that approach to the Bible, like, wrong, okay? So, like, academically, just, you know, in terms of the right way to approach the Bible, that approach is incorrect, but it, it wrecks your life when you approach the Bible in that way. When you think that God's love for you is dependent upon your performance for Him, then it will either cause one of two things. If you're kind of good at keeping the rules or at least faking like it and making other people think that you do that, you're going to become a self-righteous jerk. And if you're bad at keeping the list, then you're going to like throw your hands up in the air and say, I, I can't do this anyway, so why even try? Why bother? 
and so it wrecks our lives. But that's not the point of the Old Testament. That's not the point of the story that God is telling us in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us, Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As he's writing that second letter to his protege, Timothy, he says, Timothy, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So what is the point and the purpose of the early chapters of Genesis? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the point of Leviticus and Ecclesiastes and First Chronicles? It's to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This whole book, the Old Testament, is a story, a true story. Okay, Not that there aren't uh, poet, you know, poems and prophecy and all these things, but there's all this history in there. It's this true story that points to Christ and His saving power and His changing power. And the fact that we don't know how to read it that way means that we're not growing like we ought in our relationship with Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning as we answer this question that you guys have submitted is to show from the early chapters of Genesis how to do this and what that means for your life. Okay, and so here's the overarching point of the message today, and then we'll, we'll kind of break it out into two halves. Uh, here's the point. The early chapters of Genesis are history, not fiction. And like kindergarten, they teach you everything that you need to know. Okay? The early chapters of Genesis are history, not fiction. And like kindergarten, they teach you everything that you need to know. Take your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 15 in preparation for our study. And let me ask you to do this. Would you guys please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Moses wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam, his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the, the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So as we try to answer this question, are the early chapters of Genesis literal or metaphorical? Here's the way that skeptics, those who say it's not literal, it's not history, here's the way as they approach it. They say, you know, primitive cultures back in the day needed, God did it, to explain the things going on around them. But now we have progressed to the point where we know better. And so now we have science, and science has proven through uh, the age of the earth or through the rate of the expansion of the universe or through the theory of evolution that things could not have happened the way that the early chapters in Genesis said that they happened. And so those early primitive cultures may have needed these stories to tell each other, but now we have natural explanations. We have science, and we know it couldn't have happened that way. And I always just laugh when people say that, because it's like, did we really need modern science to tell us that snakes don't usually talk? Like, does that qualify as this, you know, like, that, like really people in ancient cultures were too stupid to know that animals, generally speaking, don't talk? I mean, those people didn't split the atom, but they knew things about the world. Like, they knew animals don't talk and dead people don't come back to life again, generally. But sometimes there are miracles that happen, okay? And so th- this idea that science, that, that, that we've progressed to the point where we're not like those idiots who came before us, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery, Okay? where we are snobs who think we're the enlightened ones, we know better than everybody else, and, and those people who came before us, they were just a bunch of uneducated idiots. But they weren't. They knew the way that nature worked, generally speaking. They knew the difference between fact and fiction. And they write to us the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they say, this is history. This is what happened. There's There's ways to see that they're writing in a genre called historical narrative where they're, yes, they're telling a story, but they're telling a story that is true, that is based on real life events, okay? And so that's the first thing that we see uh, here in this passage is that Genesis is history, not fiction, okay? Now, here's what we're going to do, just so you understand kind of the roadmap of where we're going. First thing I'm going to do is prove to you at least the Bible says that this is history, Okay, and then I'm going to talk to you about how you can believe that, how you can embrace that as true. And then we'll end by talking about why that's important for your life. Okay, why is it important for your life that this is history, not fiction? And and how does this give us everything that we need to know about life? Okay, so first, how do we know the Bible says that this is history? Okay, here's how we know that. Our resurrected Lord Jesus and the apostles, those who wrote the New Testament and those who presented to us in the New Testament what Jesus actually said. Because we don't know anything about what Jesus actually did or said outside the New Testament. Okay, the resurrected Lord Jesus and the eyewitnesses, those who hung out with him for three years, they tell us that the gospel, the good news of our salvation in Jesus Christ, rises and falls with the early chapters of Genesis. Okay? So the good news of Jesus that we're sinners and Christ came into human existence and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins under the judgment of God and he was raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven to the right hand of God and he's going to return 
to judge and to make all things right, like that's that good news, that gospel, the gospel that saves us, forgives us our sins and gives us eternal life, they say that rises and falls on the early chapters of Genesis. Let me just say this too as I, as I walk through what I mean by that. Like, yes, the, the foundation of the gospel is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Like literally, bodily, historically, if we could get in a time machine and go back to the first Easter Sunday morning and camp out outside the tomb, you would literally see the body of Jesus walk out of the grave, okay? That's, what Christi- that's, the, that's the foundation of the gospel. Here's the deal. If you actually believe that, if you're a Christian and you actually believe that Jesus literally was raised from the dead, then everything else in the Bible's pretty much a piece of cake. Like the dead guy who said he was God came back to life again, then it's not a stretch to say that he's able to speak the universe into existence or keep a guy alive in the belly of a fish for three days or make a snake talk, okay? Like all of this, if we're going to say that the center of our faith is Jesus raised from the dead, and Jesus says, here's the bottom line, Jesus, your Lord and Savior, says all of it's true. Creation, Adam and Eve, the devil, sin, death, all of that's true. Okay, so if you're a follower of Jesus, then submission to the Lordship of Jesus means having the same view of the Old Testament that Jesus has. Okay, but not only Jesus, the eyewitnesses, the apostles, those who wrote these things down, they assumed all that was true. They assumed God created the world in seven days that there was a real historical Adam, that the serpent did actually tempt them to sin, and that death entered into human existence as a result. And Jesus is the answer to all of those problems. Okay, That's what they write in the New Testament. They say all of this, they assume all of this happened. Let me give you just one uh, example of this. You'll see this on the screen. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Again, here he's assuming Adam, Eve, sin, the devil, and then Jesus is the answer. Listen to what he says. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's from the first man to the giving of the law, from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification for life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, 
Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that is a compact, complex argument that Paul is making. But here's the bottom line argument that he's making. He's saying, look, the reason why there is death, the reason why all humans die, is because there was a real first man named Adam who was the representative for all of the humans who would come after him. And when he sinned, he passed down guilt and death to all of his offspring. And there is one new man named Jesus Christ who is the representative for all humans who are in him by faith. And he brought in the exact opposite of what Adam did. He brought in forgiveness and life for all who are in him. And so you have to choose who do I want to be my representative before God? The first Adam who sinned and died or the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who brought in eternal life? Okay, and so he's saying, look, all of these things, what Adam actually did and then all of his offspring, all of the generations that came after him are suffering the consequences of what Adam did. Jesus came in to fix that and to make those things right so that Adam sinned, Jesus was righteous. Adam passed down guilt. Jesus offers justification and forgiveness of sins. Adam passed down death. Jesus offers you life. And so what Paul is saying is, look, that what happened back there in the early chapters in Genesis, it's real. It has real life impact on your life right now. And Jesus is the answer to get you out of it. And what's happening in the early chapters of Genesis is that in seed form, like embryonic form, okay, these things begin to, to form patterns that are going to go on and on through human history and are going to culminate and be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Scholars call this uh, typology, is what scholars uh, call this, that there's these patterns in human history that, that have similarities that are passed down generation, that, that, that each succeeding generation uh, you know, exhibits these patterns and shows these patterns, and then ultimately they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why... Paul even used that word right there. He says that Adam was a type or a pattern of the one who was to come. That's important. I'm going to tell you why in a second. So there's this, this Adam pattern that begins early where there's the guy who's the representative for the human race. And Adam then corresponds to Jesus because Jesus fulfills what Adam messed up on. You think about it this way. Okay, There's all kinds of correspondences here. Uh, Adam was tempted by the devil in a garden. Jesus was tempted by the devil in a, the opposite of a garden, the wilderness. Adam disobeyed God and obeyed the serpent. Jesus rejected the serpent and obeyed God. And because of that, he's able to offer life, whereas Adam offers you death. The same thing, that both were in a garden. Both were Faced with a decision, do I obey God or not? Adam disobeyed. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Okay, there's two trees. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam fails there. There's the tree at Calvary, the cross. Jesus succeeds there. He goes to the cross. He dies on the cross for our sins so that he is, he is raised to new life and he offers that new life to us. And so the patterns that began in Adam are fulfilled in Jesus. We see this all throughout 
uh, the Old Testament. I, I shared this with the students at Carson Newman a couple weeks ago. The, we're getting ready to go into Passion Week here in a couple of weeks. The Passion Week of Jesus is patterned after and is a fulfillment of the Creation Week in Genesis chapter 1 that you guys looked at, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Genesis chapter 1, you think the first five days, God creates the land and the, 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 the sea and the sky and all that, and then he begins to fill what he has created. And then on the sixth day, what does he create? Man. Okay, on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. What happens on Jesus on Passion Week? On Friday, the sixth day, he's brought out before Pontius Pilate, and they say, Behold the man. And just as God finished his work on the sixth day, on Friday, Jesus finished his work of salvation on the sixth day, on Friday. What did Jesus do on Saturday? He rested in the garden tomb. Then on Sunday, he comes out, new life. Okay, All of these things happening in the early chapters of Genesis pointing to Jesus. Think about Noah and the flood. The water in the Old Testament, if you go read, is often a symbol of judgment. And so we see this over and over and over again. Noah and the flood. God wants to judge human sin in the world. What does he do? Sends a worldwide flood. He rescues Noah and his family safely through to the other side. Think about in the Exodus at the Red Sea. What happens? God parts the waters of the Red Sea. Moses leads the Israelites through on dry ground to save them from the Egyptian army. The Egyptian army pursues them. What does God do? Throws those walls of water on top of the Egyptian army drowns them under his judgment think about jonah jonah is running away from god disobeying god so there's a storm that comes up threatening to kill them jonah says this is because of me it's because of my sin throw me in and things will be made right they throw jonah into the water what happens things calm down the sailors are saved safely through to the other side over and over and over again and that's why jesus when he's on his death march to jerusalem he's going to jerusalem He says, I'm going to Jerusalem because I have a baptism that I must undergo. He refers to the cross as a baptism. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem to drown under the wrath of God. And three days later, I'm going to be brought back out safely into new life. And so all of these things that are being being shown to us in the early chapters of Genesis are being brought to culmination in Jesus Christ. Now, here's why that's important. Why that's important for you is because typology or this, this, this historical correspondence means that when you read the Bible, that it actually can apply to your life. Because the patterns and the, the types that are happening all the way back there actually have something to do with your life right now. And so you can read the Bible and say that it actually corresponds to my life and to the patterns that I see in the world around me. And so I can believe it. And so I can put it into practice. And so that's why we see not only that Genesis is history, not fiction, but why we we can embrace that belief and also why that matters for our life. Because these early chapters of Genesis make the best sense of the world that we actually live in. They make the best sense of the world around us. The theory of evolution does not. Okay? The theory of evolution does not. Like, evolution can't account for certain things. It cannot account for uh, the fact, like, if, if, if life's only about the propagation of the species, survival of fittest, making sure that we survive and that we go on, then how does that explain the fact that we love people who have died and have been dead 
for years and years and years. How does that help us propagate the species? It doesn't. The Bible explains better than the theory of evolution, why there's something rather than nothing. It explains why humanity has the capacity both for great good and for great evil. Okay, and so it makes the best sense of the world around us. And so that leads to the second thing. I'll just go through this briefly. Genesis is like kindergarten. Okay, what I mean by that is it tells us everything that we need to know. So let's, let's read the last part of Genesis chapter 3. I'll make a few comments on that. Look what the Bible says there in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every, uh, excuse me, I'm down, I was in chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 3. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which was turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's, here's the deal. The early chapters of Genesis answer the four major questions that all humans ask. Okay? Answer the four major questions that all humans ask. Number one, where do I come from? Number two, what's wrong with the world? Number three, what's the solution? And number four, where am I heading? Okay? These are the four major things that all humans wrestle with. Origin, problem, solution, and future. Okay? And the early chapters of Genesis answer all of these questions, okay? Uh, man, there must be something somebody really wants in that car, you know? <laughs> they're, wor they're working hard for it. All right, so let me just walk through those, those quickly. The, the early chapters of Genesis give us the origin, like where do we come from and how were we designed and how was the world designed and what is God's purpose for us in the world? All of that is given to us in the early chapters of Genesis. It tells us God created the world and that the world was good. Seven times in Genesis chapter 1, God says it was good. It was good. That's a number of perfection. So the world in the beginning created by God, and it was perfect. Human beings were created in the image of God. I know you guys have talked about that over the last couple of weeks, which means every human being has dignity, value, and worth. The Bible says that we were created for relationships. Okay, now in Genesis, the early chapter of Genesis, speaking specifically about marriage, and family, but we know that not most people in human existence will get married, but not everybody. There's those who have the gift of singleness. But whether or not you get married or you remain single, you are created for relationships. The first time that God says, not good, is in Genesis chapter 2 when he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Okay? So you are created for relationships. You are created to multiply. Okay? He says, Man and woman come together, and you need to be, be fruitful and multiply. That's true physically in terms of family life, 
It's also true spiritually that we are given a role as the people of God to multiply the number of believers in Jesus Christ, to create new converts through the Great Commission. Early chapters of Genesis tell us there's this rhythm of work six days and rest on the seventh day, that we were made to work, but we're also made to rest. All of this is in the beginning of Genesis. Now, what happens is man messes up. And people ask this question sometimes, like, John, I mean, why in the world did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden and then, then tell them not to touch it? Like, what's the point? What was he trying to get at? And here's, here's what he's trying to get at. What God, what God was doing is he was trying to teach humans, okay, and we, we miserably fail at this. He's trying to teach humans that we are not the ones who evaluate what is good and what is bad, okay? God's the one who does that. Again, seven times in chapter one, it's good. One time in chapter two, it's not good. God's saying, I'm, you're not the arbiter of good and evil. I'm the arbiter of good and evil. And so you should depend upon my word to tell you this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. Depend upon my word. Don't make that choice for yourself. Don't grab for that by yourself. We messed up. They grabbed for the knowledge of good and evil apart from the word of God and tried to grab it for themselves. And we've been doing it ever since. And we've been calling what God says good evil, and we've been calling what God says is, is evil good, and it results in brokenness. That's the problem. That's what's wrong with the world. Human sin, we've departed from God's design for us and from His purpose, and it's caused all kinds of havoc, okay? Which, again, anytime you use something in life, we know this practically, anything, anytime you use something against its design, it messes up, right? And so the story I always like to tell, because, you know, it's, it's funny, is when I was in high school, my youngest brother, Tim, was a big Taco Bell fan, still is a Taco Bell fan. Uh, I mean, who isn't? But he, he, this one time he got too many tacos, he couldn't eat them all. And so he, he put a couple in the fridge and was like, you know what, when I get hungry later, I'm going to warm them up and I'm going to eat them. And he took the sauce packets that he put on his taco and he put those in the fridge as well. So come that afternoon, he was like, I'm hungry. So he goes to the fridge, he gets out the taco, puts it on a plate, warms up in the microwave, and then he gets it out and he's like, gets the taco packet. And he's like, you know what? I don't want cold sauce on my warm taco. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so he puts the taco packet in the microwave, hits the button, hits start. What do you think happened? Fourth of July in the <laughs> kitchen, you know? And, and, and so he's like, oh, no, no. And he's like trying to hit the thing to, you know, eject the door and, and why did it happen? Because that's not the way taco sauce packets were designed to be used. And it causes havoc. And the same thing is true when we depart from God's design. When we sin, it causes brokenness in all of those areas that I just talked about. Okay? Brokenness. And specifically, uh, relation, we were made for relationships. It causes relationship disruption. Okay? It breaks our relationship with God. They used to enjoy fellowship with God. Then they hear him coming in Genesis chapter 3, throw themselves in the bushes, and they hide. And so what, what happens now? Instead of intimacy with God, we're hiding from God. Instead of confessing our sins, we shift blame. It's not my fault. It's her fault. It's not my fault. It's Satan. You know, he made me do it. And we're shifting blame, and we're, we're hiding, and we've lost intimacy with God. And ultimately, they are cast out of the garden, out of, the, out of paradise. And so now that intimacy and that closeness they had with God is gone. It it breaks our relationship with ourself. 
causes confusion about our identity and, and who we actually are. It breaks our relationship with other people. As we just read, it's going to cause friction in the marriage relationship. You're going to want to swap roles, and, and it's going to cause barriers in your relationship with your spouse. It's going to cause parental to children, not only in conception, but in raising children. There's going to be pain, and there's going to be, there's going to be alienation there that you're going to have to try to overcome. It's going to cause friction and disruption in your relationships with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and people you go to school with and, and the world around you. He says, look, it's going to be difficult for you to work the ground now. It's going to be difficult for you to make a living. There's going to be recessions. There's going to be high inflation and high gas prices. Like This is part of life in a broken world. But the solution is given here in Genesis chapter 3 as well. We see the what scholars call the first gospel where he, he says to Adam and Eve, listen, Eve, one of your offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. There is a Messiah who's going to come, a Savior. And then we see a glimpse of that here because the first blood sacrifice in the Bible is actually in Genesis chapter 3. I don't know if you caught that. But God kills an animal and then uses the skins from those animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve and the guilt of Adam and Eve. And so we see a glimpse here of what Christ does on the cross where Christ was sacrificed for us so that we could be forgiven and our guilt and our shame could be taken away. And then he casts Adam and Eve out from the garden. He puts cherubim in front of the entrance of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword to keep people out. And then here's what happens. You go read this uh, in Exodus, for example, or in 1 Kings. When the people of Israel build the tabernacle and when they build the temple, okay, and they, they construct in the middle of the temple this place called the Holy of Holies where God literally lives in the midst of his people. The glory cloud of God comes down into the Holy of Holies and it separates him. There's a veil that separates the Holy of Holies where God is from the place where people are. And woven into the, out, the, the, the outer entrance to the Holy of Holies Guess what is woven into that veil? Anybody know? Cherubim. So it's a symbol that paradise that you lost, being with God, is in there, and you're on the outside. What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? That veil is torn in two from top to bottom. Okay? The author of Hebrews says the veil was his flesh, that he, 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 he tore apart with his death on the cross, and he is now opened back up our opportunity and our access to God. What we lost in the Garden of Eden, we now have in Jesus Christ. We can come back into the presence of God. And so all of this, again, is there in the early chapters in Genesis, pointing us to what Jesus is going to do for us. And then lastly, the future. The, the world is, is heading somewhere. And one important phrase that you need to remember about what the future holds is that, is that last things will be like first things, but better. Okay, last things will be like first things, but better. We're heading towards, like, people have this misconception that we're heading towards a heaven where we're like this bodiless spirit existence where we're floating on a cloud having a never-ending choir practice. Okay, that's not your future. The Bible says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that you're going to be, your spirit is going to be joined with your resurrected and glorified body and that we will actually relate to each other and serve God and fellowship and spend time together and do activities. We're going to just do it in a place 
where there's no tears, no pain, no death, no sickness, no COVID. Okay? That's where we're heading. And you get all of that in the early chapters in Genesis. I'll show you a diagram here on the screen. But the, the story of Noah and the ark, okay, the flood story, is a miniature history of the entire world. Okay? Now, we often misunderstand the Noah and the flood story because we think it's like this story about cute animals and stuff so that we can have uh, Christian toys that we can sell to, to young couples, you know, when they're starting to have kids. But that's not what the Noah's Ark story is about, okay? It, again, it's, it's the miniature history of the entire world where you have the creation of God that has been marred by human sin. God wants to judge that human sin, so he sends the flood. He rescues his people safely to the other side, and he starts again with a new clean slate, okay? A new creation. Now, problem is, it's just miniature because Noah messes up again. And guess what he messes up with? Fruit. Never saw that coming, right? And so have to do the whole thing over again. And so the next is the, the history of the world, okay? So you have creation, which has been marred by human sin. The cross is where God pours out his judgment on human sin. He just pours it out on Jesus on the cross. He saves all those who believe in him. And we're heading towards a new creation. All who believe in Christ will be part of that new creation. Those who do not will be judged and they'll miss out on it. Okay, so you say, well, how, how can I know how to be a part of that? How can I know how to not miss out on that? And here's what Jesus says. Read the early chapters of Genesis. Jesus tells this story about a rich man who was not a believer who died on the same day. It was a poor guy that he had kind of tormented named Lazarus. They both died on the same day. The rich man goes to hell. The poor man goes to heaven. And then there in the afterlife, they're having a conversation back and forth. And the rich man who's in agony in the flames of hell calls up to Lazarus, who's, who's spending time with Abraham. And he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers and I do not want them to come to this place of torment. And here's what Abraham says. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if a man goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham says, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen if a man comes back from the dead. So if you want to know how to not miss out on a secure future, and if you want to know how to live right now, being forgiven of your sins and given a fresh start to live out the life that God intended for you to live. Well, don't, don't hide your sin. Don't like, act like it's not there. Don't blame other people for it. Run to Jesus Christ, confess your sin, and let your life be found in Him. Because that's what Moses wants you to do. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to pray for us, and then Pastor Jimmy's going to come and give us some instructions about how to respond to this message. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus. Father, I know there's all kinds of stories in this room and all kinds of uh, things going on of, of 
where there could be brokenness of self, brokenness of relationships, brokenness in terms of work and rest, and some who rest too much and are lazy, some who work too hard and are workaholics. And Father, we have consistently gone against the design that you have for our lives and for our relationships, for our families. And so it brings hurt and it brings pain, it brings shame, it brings guilt, it brings brokenness. But you tell us that all of those things which have been a part of the human experience from the very beginning, that Jesus came and that he died in our place and that he took all of our brokenness on himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free so that we could have a new start, so that we could begin to pursue the life that, that you want us to pursue. And so, Father, I pray that no matter where the folks in this room are at on that, in that cycle, it's never too late to be forgiven. It's never too late to get a fresh start. And today is the day to pursue the life that God has for you. And so, Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts and our lives and that we would take the little story of our life and and make it become part of the big story of what you're doing in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name.